Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Uh, well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It's great to see you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, you could turn to Mark chapter 14. So Mark chapter 14, uh, we are in, I, I don't know what week this is, a lot of weeks uh, going through the gospel of Mark. And in particular, uh, over the past several weeks, uh, we've been looking at the end of the book of Mark and how it particularly points us forward to Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, so we're going to pick up today Mark 14, uh, verse 1. Uh, have you ever experienced an awkward moment? I imagine because you're a human, you have. Uh, I uh, have this affinity for awkward moments. Uh, I tend to create them. Uh, I tend to thrive in the middle of them, uh, enjoy them, perhaps in a way uh, that is not normal for a human being who uh, has love uh, for other people. Uh, but, uh, but I do often enjoy them. Uh, however, uh, several years ago, I had the chance to meet uh, a guy who was um, a worship leader. He was fairly well known for a little bit, and I just happened to really enjoy what he did. Uh, my friend Tyler uh, was a, uh, his guitar player, and so Tyler and I had played for a couple other worship leaders kind of in the Raleigh area when we lived up there, and so we knew each other just from that, uh, that scene. And, uh, and I was like, hey, man, could you introduce me to him? And Tyler was like, yeah, I would love to. Like, yeah, come meet him. And so Tyler introduced me to this guy, uh, his big conference, and I'm like, hey, man, I really love what you do. Thank you so much uh, for the, your music. We do it in our student ministry. I was a youth pastor at the time, all the time, and uh, we really appreciate what you do. And he goes, oh, okay. And he's a little bit of an awkward guy anyway. Uh, and he says, uh, okay, well, uh, tell me about your church. Uh, and so just making a joke, I was like, oh, I'm at such and such church. We're a church of champions, which is kind of a weird joke. And he just said, I- I'm sorry, What? And I said, oh, I'm, it's, just a, it's just a joke. And he goes, okay. And then I did this. Uh, and then he did this. And then I did this. And then some other people came up to talk to him. And so I was a part of this kind of like conversation circle where they're having this conversation, so people he knew about music and that sort of thing. It's the only time in my life I ever did like the Homer Simpson meme where I just went slowly, <laughs> carefully, backed out of the talking circle, and without saying a word, just tried to disappear into the crowd. The awkwardness just consumed me. I created it. It was terrible. Mark chapter 14, we are going to see and experience a very awkward exchange, an awkward moment. Let me give you some context. Uh, you may remember where we are in the book of Mark. Uh, Mike touched this on a couple weeks ago. Uh, Jesus has come into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. He came with what we call the triumphal entry. And so people are celebrating him, laying down their cloaks and uh, waving palm branches for him, celebrating Jesus entering into the city. And then in the middle of the celebration, uh, instead of relishing in the moment, you might remember from Mike's message, it said Jesus goes to the temple and um, kicks a bunch of people out, causes a scene, throws over some tables, 
Uh, and so he has been most of the way through the book of Mark in the crosshairs of the religious leaders. But after the display in the temple, uh, they are very, very upset with him. And then the section that we just skipped uh, is in Mark 13. And so I want to give you like a quick like overview of what's going on. Really, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he wants them to grasp two key points in Mark 13. Uh, The first one is that the kingdom is not going to be established in the manner which they think it's going to be established. So Mark 13 is his teaching on the end times, what happens in the end. And there is some important information for us to understand there. But more importantly is we need to grasp the fact that Jesus is definitively telling his disciples that the kingdom is not going to come in any sort of physical sense in the here and now, but it's going to come later. And you can imagine, remember, all the way through the book of Mark, Mark, the disciples have been expecting Jesus to be this true king who is going to institute this new kingdom. He's going to kick out the Romans who are occupying their nation and establish this nation to its former glory. And Jesus, in Mark 13, is definitively saying to them, that's not the way it's going to be. And then he tells them this other really harder thing for them to take in Mark 13. Uh, He says, uh, and in fact, what's coming next for you is not glory, honor, and fame. What's coming next for you is persecution. Uh, You are going uh, to be persecuted. Some of you will be killed. Some of you are going to be thrown in prison. You're going to have to stand on trial. And so if you can imagine being there in this moment, Mark 13, 13, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be hated by all for my namesake. They're like, oh, oh, uh, kingdom's not coming now, and instead what's coming now is a lot of bad stuff for me. This maybe is not what I thought I was signing up for. Now, the idea of Jesus' second coming is normal to us uh, because we know the rest of the story. If you've been around church, uh, we know, we've heard that Jesus is coming back. But for these disciples, just imagine what this moment would have been like for them. They've just been told that their reward for following Jesus for the past three years is not an exalted place in his government, and it's not even the immediate restoration of the nation that they love. But instead, what they are going to get is hatred and persecution. Hey, you're going to get jail time. Aren't you excited? Great news I am coming back again, but in the meantime, what's going to happen is you are going on trial before people who will hate your guts. And you're going to have to endure, Jesus says, even darker days than some of the days that we've endured. That's what your future holds. That's the context. So what's just happened in Mark 13. Then we jump into Mark 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So here's the setting. Mark is giving us a time period. The setting is the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Passover is all the way from the book of Exodus. 
It's a, a feast, a time of remembrance, a holiday, if you will, a religious day for the people of Israel to look back and remember how God delivered them through the blood of the lamb from slavery in Egypt and from judgment for their sins. And he led them out of Egypt. And that, the Passover, was quickly followed then by a seven-day celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, where they would remember their trek out of Egypt and how they just had to pack what they had and bread that was unleavened to carry with them, and that's what they ate when they left. And so when the Passover is coming, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is coming, which means everybody's in Jerusalem. It is packed. And so it's packed. There's people everywhere. And now the religious leaders, remember, because of the temple incident, are moving forward with killing Jesus. But here they say, but we're not going to do it now because there's too big of a crowd. This is a really dumb time to do something like this. We're going to find out later uh, that they change their mind uh, because they get a unique opportunity later in the chapter. Verse 3. And when he was at Bethany, uh, Bethany is like a suburb of Jerusalem, just a little bit away, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. And she has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, uh, wherever the gospel, the good news of the kingdom is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in her memory. Now that's awkward, right? It's a series of awkward moments in this exchange. The first one is just the awkwardness of the woman's actions. Can you imagine just being there? Now we don't know much about Simon the leper, Evidently, he doesn't have leprosy now because he can have people into his home. So perhaps he's someone that Jesus has healed. We're not sure. But at this party, uh, a woman shows up. You're there. Put yourself in the moment. Maybe you know her or you've seen her before. Maybe you don't. But it seems like she knows Jesus and that he knows her. And she breaks open this flask, this alabaster flask. The common design would be that it would have kind of a long neck. And so you watch her break off the neck of that jar, that flask. And what she begins to do is to pour it out onto Jesus. And you're in the room and you start to smell the perfume and you recognize quickly that it's, that it's nard. Now, nard is not from uh, Israel. It's from India. And so it's incredibly costly. And you know this is a treasure. This is not normal. It's precious. And as you are smelling it, you, you know this is something, maybe it's a family heirloom or something she's bought at great expense to herself or perhaps she was saving this for a special occasion like her wedding day. And then as she begins to pour this out, every last drop onto Jesus, you're like, oh, no, this is weird. 
Now, the text doesn't indicate that there's anything sexual going on here. I feel like I have to say this uh, because it's 2022 and we're in this kind of post-Freudian age where because of the writings of a guy who turns out was very wrong on a lot of things, uh, our society right now thinks that everything is sexual in some way. That's not what's going on, but this is intimate. And I think if you and I were in the room, we would go, I don't think this is for me. Yet I might have to slowly back out of what's going on here. And then Mark tells us that some were indignant, he says. They scold the woman. They say it's a wasteful act. Even, uh, even people in the first century uh, evidently like to tell other people what to do with their money. You don't even have to have social media to weigh in on what someone should have done with their own stuff. Matthew, though, tells us a little bit more. Matthew tells us in his account of this story that it was the disciples. It's not religious leaders. It's the disciples who start to scold the woman. And then John gives us an even more little bit of detail. And he says the ringleader was Judas. That Judas starts to stir up dissentment. And Judas is the one that's the ringleader of the conversation, accusing this woman of being wasteful. And you're there in the room and you start to hear the argument and you're like actually I think these dudes are kind of right I mean this does seem wasteful right it's a lot of money 300 denarii that's nearly an entire year's worth of wages I mean if she wanted to do something with it maybe they are right maybe she should have sold it and given it to the poor that seems to be more in line with what we've been learning from Jesus So about the time you start to agree, awkward moment number two, Jesus starts doing some scolding of his own. And he looks at his disciples and speaks up and chastises them. He says, hey, you you leave her alone. Why are you bothering? Why are you troubling her? And Jesus does something surprising. He says what she's done is beautiful. This is an excellent, precious, unbelievable thing that she has done for me. Can you imagine the moment the disciples start looking around with each other like, what's going on here? Like we kind of thought we got it and then we didn't get it. Like we're getting scolded. Uh, She's the one breaking stuff. You know what I mean? Like, she's the one acting all awkwardly. This is strange. Like, what? what is going on? And then Jesus doubles down and says, in fact, whenever people talk about the good news of the kingdom, what they're going to talk about is her. And think about how true that is. Like, think about this for a second. At least 25% of the disciples, we don't even know a thing about right? What, what do you know about Thaddeus? Or what do you know about James, the son of Alphaeus? Or what do you know about Simon the Zealot? Who are those dudes? But we've heard this story before. We know who this lady is. But why is it that Jesus defends her actions? Why is Jesus celebrating what she's done? Why does he call it beautiful? Why? Let's check it out. Verse 7, verse 8. First, he says, the poor you will always have with you. Now, some people have used this verse to diminish the need to serve the poor. 
which is great. If you're comfortable with ignoring Jesus' other teachings in the New Testament on how we should serve and love the least of these, and if you're cool with ignoring pages and pages of prophecies in the Old Testament calling God's people out precisely for not serving the poor, then that's your take and you could accept it. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say don't serve the poor. Instead, he's saying you will always have the opportunity to serve the poor. And then he says this, right? But you will not always have me. Instead, what Jesus is talking about here is the timeliness of her actions. That there is time to serve the poor. And in fact, many of the disciples who are in this room are going to spend their lives doing that very thing. And from the churches that these disciples start, faithful generations of churches will serve the poor. But Jesus is saying, there is a time to extravagantly, beautifully, non-logically, expressively, and maybe even awkwardly express your complete love and gratitude to him that he in this moment is correcting the attitude of his disciples. He's helping them see what this woman already sees, that it is Jesus that is infinitely valuable and worth everything that we could give. Serving the poor when we don't feel like it and breaking open the very best that we have in order to honor and exalt him. And then he says in verse eight, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus is saying she's done something significant that I'm not even sure she knows what she's doing. She's done something significant and she doesn't even realize the significance. And to the disciples, you don't realize the significance. You think this is a waste of resources, but Jesus is saying this is a timely act that expresses extravagant love and captures the significance of this moment in a unique and unbelievable way. That this over-the-top expression of love foreshadows Jesus' own over-the-top expression of love. That in the same way that this woman broke open this alabaster jar and poured out every drop of its contents. That Jesus is saying, this is pointing forward to something else. When his own body will be broken on the cross and he will pour out every drop of his blood to save sinners like you and me. This anointing is important for the people of Israel. Yeah, bodies were anointed with oils and perfumes as a part of the burial process. Remember, they don't have refrigeration. And so in order to preserve the body, this is a part of the process. But also remember, anointing is something done by often a religious leader to signify someone who's been called or chosen by God for a special place in his kingdom. And in fact, anointings are often done for kings. Remember, Samuel goes and finds David years and years before he's actually ever going to become king. And what does he do? He anoints him as the future king. So check this out. Jesus is anointed as king and as a dead man in the same moment. 
this is where Mark's been trying to get us the whole time. To this symbolic act where instead of a religious leader, instead this woman shows up at a party, anoints Jesus. This is his coronation ceremony and is preparial for uh, burial. This moment signifies that God has chosen him for a special task, that he is the king, but he's also the king who is going to die for his people. That he, Jesus, is anointed as king in this moment, but the king who's going to lay down his life completely. This is like, again, the lion, witch, in the wardrobe. Do you remember in C.S. Lewis's story, his kid's story, there are whispers and rumors that Aslan, the true king, is coming. And Aslan, the true king, shows up. But instead of immediately establishing his kingdom through his physical dominance, the first act of Aslan, the lion, the great returning king, is to lay down his life for Edmund, the one who has betrayed him. And in the same way, Jesus is the coming king, the true king, as we've seen in the book of Mark, the servant king, and he is the crucified king. This moment of symbolism that perhaps this woman doesn't even fully grasp, saying Jesus is anointed as the true king in the same moment that he's anointed for his death. So, what does this mean in our response I love verse 8. This phrase in verse 8 is emotionally moving. Here's what Jesus says about this woman. He says, she has done what she could. Wouldn't you hope that Jesus would say that about you? She has done what she could. It's beautiful, packed with power. Now, Mark doesn't tell us who this woman is, but John does. John tells us this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. And now you start to kind of maybe get the picture. Mary, you might remember we've seen her before in the gospel accounts just sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking up his teaching. Mary, who Jesus loves. Mary, who lost her brother Lazarus to death, but Jesus brought him to life. And so this Mary shows up at this house and sees Jesus, whom she owes everything to. And you can imagine, she goes, what do I have to offer him? And she searches her house and her possessions, and she finds the very best of what she has. And she gives it all. And she gives to Jesus what no one would ever ask for her to give up. How, she is saying, can I give Jesus the very best that I have? And this is what she finds. And Mary takes a risk of awkwardness and embarrassment, being mocked. Gladly, I can imagine her smiling back at the disciples who are scolding her. Why? Because she is moved to the point that she has to give Jesus her best. That she sees him as infinitely valuable and her only response is to give something as valuable as she has. In this this way, 
This example of Mary is an encouragement to us as followers of Jesus to give our very best. But there is something else happening in this text. There's also a warning. See, Mark does something interesting that he hasn't done a lot of. He tells his story out of chronological order. In fact, most likely, this anointing happened earlier in the week or perhaps even the previous week. But he moves the story here. Now, some of you are like, hold up. I thought the Gospels were historical accounts of Jesus' life. The Gospels are historical accounts of Jesus' life, but told by people who are trying to prove something or teach us something. They are historical accounts, but they are also literature. And so Mark is giving you an historical account, changing a little bit of the chronological order of the events in order to prove or show us something. You go, oh man, that's weird. It's not that weird. I just read Will Smith's autobiography. He does it all the way through his autobiography, all the way through. Why? Because he's telling stories, and then he'll go back and tell a previous story in order to illustrate the point of the story that he's in. It's exactly what Mark is doing here. Check this out. He moved it to put it in between the religious leaders wanting to kill Jesus, their plot, and then who's going to help them. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see why? It's a comparison. Mark is trying to show us the difference between Mary, who is giving everything for Jesus, and Judas, who is looking for an opportunity to take advantage of the situation. Remember the bigger context. Judas has just been corrected by Jesus in front of a whole crowd of people at a party. This has been for him the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. He started following Jesus, but believing there was going to be some sort of gain for him in the whole thing. That he's going to be a part of a people, a group that's going to make a difference. That they were going to return Israel to their former glory. That they're going to help the poor and restore the dignity of their countrymen. They were going to do something great with Jesus. And they were probably going to be rewarded. I mean, why wouldn't they be? He's in the 12. But here's Jesus scolding him. And here's Jesus in chapter 13 telling all the disciples the kingdom isn't coming now. And here's Jesus in chapter 13 telling him that his future is suffering and pain and a brutal death. And then Jesus saying, that's my future and yours. Suffering and pain is coming to you too. And Judas in verse 10 is saying, no thanks, I'm out. Right? And the cash cow stops producing milk. You got to move on to the next thing. And so then Judas in the story is looking for a way to get what he wants. Mary does what she can. She's not concerned with efficiency, but love and beauty. She sees Jesus as valuable for who he is, not what he can give. Here's what this means for us. 
The danger of constantly seeing our relationship to Jesus as only pragmatic is that we cease to be captivated by who Jesus is. What do I mean by pragmatic or pragmatism? Jared Wilson says pragmatism is the kind of thinking that values a thing based entirely on its apparent practicality. Pragmatism judges the usefulness of a particular practice or sometimes even a particular person based on results. We would say it this way, the end justifies the means. Or doing simply what works. If it works, it must be good. I don't know if you've listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, but everything that happened was being justified by everything in that podcast simply by pragmatism. It must be, it's working, so we must be in the right. This is Judas. As long as I get a preferred spot in the kingdom, as long as I'm a part of something great, as long as there is the ends that I want, then I'm going along with this thing. But when the ends are in doubt, then I'm jumping ship. Pragmatism works its way into the hearts of disciples. It is the air that we breathe, especially in, if I can be so bold, North Atlanta church culture. We get preoccupied with what Jesus can give to us. We start thinking the kingdom is about our own fame, our own usefulness to God, reigning with Jesus. We start to ask questions about Jesus. Does it work? Does he make me feel happy or better about myself? Does prayer give me the financial resources that I need or what that I want in this moment? Pragmatism creeps into our churches. If it reaches people, then let's do it. If we could get 2,000 people here on Easter by giving away a car, then let's give away a car. Pragmatism makes the congregation of the church the consumer and Jesus the product. It conditions us to think that we are the audience for worship. Can I break your heart for a second? We don't worship for you. You're not the audience. God is the audience. We come to extol his praises. I'm sorry if we didn't sing the song that you liked today. It wasn't for you. I'm sorry if I'm being a little aggressive today. You feel uncomfortable. It's not for you. It includes you. We want you to be a part. It's an invitation. But you're not our consumer. You're not the audience. I love D.A. Carson. He says this, what ought to make worship delightful to us is not in the first instance, it's novelty, it's aesthetic beauty, but it's object. God himself is delightfully wonderful and we learn to delight in him. That's what we do here every Sunday. Try to help you learn to delight in him. Maybe you haven't noticed this. You notice the first song? Most of you guys don't notice the first song because you're still in the parking lot or in the lobby. But do you notice Mitchell always picks a first song that is definitely Godward in orientation? Today, what? Holy, holy, holy is our God. Song's not about you. It's about him. 
It's meant to serve as a reminder, the very first thing we see together when you come in this place, that this is not about you. God is the audience. We are talking, singing to him. This is what enables us to sing like we did today. Unlike Judas who bails ship, we sing, in my sorrows, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. In my victory, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Then any comfort, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. More than all riches, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Our souls declaring Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Our song eternal is Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. It is a prayer in the form of a song asking God to not make, allow us to be pragmatists. Saying, if it works, great, Jesus is better. If it doesn't work, fine, Jesus is better. Mark wants us, his readers, to see the danger inherently that exists in seeing Jesus as merely useful. That when we see Jesus as merely useful, then when Jesus teaches hard things, we hit the eject button. When Jesus says persecution is coming, we start looking for ways to get out. Or that the kingdom isn't coming like you thought it was. We start looking for another king and another kingdom. When Jesus is only useful to us, then when Jesus does strange things that don't make sense, then often those of us who see Jesus merely as a means to an end will leave. Like when Jesus praises a woman for being wasteful with her resources or corrects a disciple who firmly believes that he's right. On the other hand, people who love and are captivated by Jesus himself, people like Mary are willing to take the criticism and do what seems reckless and wasteful to other people because what they value the most is Jesus. As followers of Jesus, our hearts must be captivated by Jesus, not the things we can get from Jesus. So, what does this mean in our hearts today? Let me just ask this question. I have to, it's a struggle. I had to ask this question of me this week. It was terrible. When is the last time you were moved to give Jesus your best, regardless of what you got in return? When's the last time you were just simply captivated by Jesus' unbelievable love for you? When's the last time you were filled with joy, not because of what you got, but because of who Jesus is? When's the last time everything else seemed to pale in comparison to Jesus? When's the last time you spent time in prayer not asking for anything, but just wanting to exalt Jesus. If it's been a while, then I just want to challenge you to do something this week. Take 10 minutes. If you've never prayed like this for 10 minutes, I promise you it feels like forever. 10 minutes this week. Open your Bible to maybe Psalm 84. This says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Or open your Bible to somewhere like Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. For 10 minutes, just let one of those psalms shape your prayer. Don't ask for anything. Don't ask for the raise. Don't ask for the promotion. Don't ask for someone to be healed. 
Don't ask for peace. Just exalt Jesus. Ten minutes. It will seem like eternity. You'll be like, daylight savings time also messed up the stopwatch. Like, what is going on here? I also think there's an application for our body, for our church. Let's be careful who we're criticizing and why we're criticizing them. It would be easy to let efficiency or a system or what we think to always be the case to shape the way we talk about each other here, talk about other people on social media, and we need to be careful because it's possible that when you and I are in our most competent in what somebody should have done, that what we're going to receive back is correction. Jesus saying, hey, you, you leave her alone. The way she spends her resources and money is none of your business. Not accountable to you. That person's accountable to me. So let's be careful. And then finally, let's be clear. We said this from the very foundation at Mercy Hill. And if you're new, I just want you to understand this is who we long to be. What is attractive about our church must be Jesus. What we are trying to do is make Jesus' name great. And if we try to create services that capture people's attention with lights, not that lights are bad, we got some stage lights. Music, not this music is bad, I love music. Clever sermon titles, I try to be clever and compelling how-to messages, whatever it might be. If we are trying to make this thing that happens up here on this stage the most attractional thing about our church, then we are going to fail. It's a swing and miss on the entire point. Jesus has to be front and center, and even more than that, what is attractive about our church, the way we're going to grow, the way the mission pushes forward is not really about what we do up here. The most attractive thing about our church is Jesus in you. You, us, being the type of people to break open some alabaster jars and pour every single drop out and never look back. What, even people who are unbelievers who come to our worship service, what they need to see is not slick production but authenticity. The answer to this question, do these people believe this junk? Which is why we dim the lights a little bit, but not all the way off. A little bit, because we want you to feel comfortable expressing yourself if you have a moment where you need to break open the jar and pour it all out. But not so much that you forget that we're all doing this together. That this isn't just about you, that this is us, Christ at work in us. In your neighborhood, what people need to see is not that you have everything together, but that you don't. And when you don't, you still exalt Jesus. At your work, 
What people need to see is not your successes or your corner office, but your infectious love. That we would be a people captivated by who Jesus is, not a people always trying to angling to get what we really want. Here's the good news today, though. If it's been a while since you just spent some time in prayer exalting Jesus, if maybe you've been overly critical of someone based on perhaps what Jesus called them to do, or maybe if you've slidden into pragmatism as determining the mission, the good news is in this passage, Jesus was anointed for burial. Because Jesus is the true king who doesn't lord his reign over his people, but lays down his life for his people. And so no matter how you've fallen short or I've fallen short, and I have, even this week, the good news says that we have a place in the kingdom, not because of what we have to offer, not because of what we broken, not because of what we poured out, but because of what Jesus broke on the cross and that he shed his blood for us in his place. That's the good news. Unbelievable news. Let me pray for us. Father. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.